Good morning. Good to see each of you this morning as the kiddos sneak out. So we're going to be in Ephesians, but before we go there, flip to Matthew chapter 18. If you don't have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to grab the Pew Bible in front of you and open to Matthew 18. So uh, last week, for those of you that weren't here, we were in Ephesians chapter 4 and we talked about, and 5, and talked about corrupt talking and crude joking. And I don't think that I soft-pedaled it, but I may have. It is my tendency sometimes to, on the grace and truth spectrum, to falter on the side of grace. Um, and so I wanted to pick that up. One of the beautiful things about preaching a couple weeks in a row, if you feel like you left something on the table last week, you can pick it back up and try again. So I'm going to just briefly do that before we jump back into Ephesians 4 and look at verse 28. So I lean this way because of my theology. I know that we can't change our own hearts. And so I often am more encouraging than thundering, uh, pulpit-pounding, uh, repent and believe, although that's what we need to do. And I'm more of just continue to trust God. He is changing it from one degree of glory to another and continue to believe that. And that's true as well. But I was reminded of a account actually in my own ministry a number of years ago. I was meeting with a young man and we met for a number of weeks and he had this, this besetting sin that he just kept falling into. And we met week after week for coffee and I just kept saying the same things like keep pressing in. Trust God. He's going to change you. I know sin is hard. I know it's a battle. And that was a fly attacking me. Uh, <clears throat> and that was just our, our time. And it was a good time, and he was growing. It was kind of two steps forward and one step back type of thing. But then we had a couple of weeks off where we didn't see each other and then ran into each other kind of in passing. I said, hey, how's it going? And he said, actually, pretty good. I met with another elder last week, and he said, just stop it. Like, just stop doing that. And... And I said, really? And he said, yeah, he just told me to be done. And I decided that was a good idea. And I, well, yes, it is a good idea. <clears throat> so maybe last week, some of you heard from the pulpit, like, keep pressing on, and you need to keep pressing on. But maybe some of you, and maybe some of you here this morning, need more of the take you by the collar, shake you, and say, stop it. Okay, so I'm going to just really quickly go back. We looked at Ephesians 4, 28, 31 chapter 5 and verse 4. Now stay in Matthew 18, but that's where we were. And it said, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you. Let there be no filthiness, foolish talk, or crude joke. And we talked about that if we have a steady diet of these things, that it will hinder our sanctification. We will not grow as we should if we're just always in company or looking at media that is taking us into the gutter. And so we asked, what measures might God have us take to cut those things off, to put those things away? Now, the reason I may have soft-pedaled it, if Matthew chapter 18 and verse 8, this is a familiar passage, but Jesus did not soft-pedal when he said to deal with sin. Matthew chapter 18, verses 8 and 9. And if your hand or your feet, foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. 
So obviously Jesus is talking parabolically here, right? He's not telling us to literally cut things off, but this is how we're to deal with sin. It's not a, ah, do better, try harder, continue to trust God. Yes, continue to trust God, but you may need to take extreme measures, and you do need to take extreme measures in fighting sin. Paul used the same language when he talked about sexual immorality. He didn't say, well, just see how close you can get to the line without being sexually immoral. No, what did he say? He said, flee from sexual immorality. He said, like, the house is on fire, flee. Like, run as fast as you can away from sin. And when he talked in Romans, he didn't talk about, well, just kind of set sin aside. No, he said, mortify sin, kill it, be done with it, and be done away. So let me pick up the media and the friends again and maybe lean in here a little bit more. We talked last week about media and just how it can pull us into this area of crude joking and corrupt talking, and that if there is a platform that is every time you go there, you are just in the gutter. And actually, the context that we were talking about that is in Ephesians 5 and verse 3, and it's talking about sexual immorality, and it's not even to be named among us in purity. And when it comes to social media and internet things, that is just pervasive, right? You can't be on YouTube without seeing stuff on the side that will take you down a road that is not good and is not healthy. So what steps might you take that you need to just stop it? Maybe, maybe you need to not have internet at home. Like, that's kind of extreme, right? Like, how am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to study? How am I going to do my work? Well, Maybe you need to figure it out and you need to figure out how to set up your office space so that your screen is always in view of those that are working around you. Maybe you need to take some extreme measure and not have internet on your phone. Like, you know, crazy in 2022 that we would not have internet on our phone. But Jesus wasn't joking around when he said, cut things off and take extreme measures. And I know when I present something like that, immediately Satan sneaks in and says, well, I can't do that. Like, I need my phone to do my work. I need my phone to do my school. And that's true. And you might think, that's just going to be super inconvenient. And it will be super inconvenient. But here is my challenge and my word to you. Your sanctification is infinitely more important than your convenience. Your sanctification is infinitely more important than your convenience. So what do you need to cut off? What measures do you need to take to cut that off? Secondly, we looked at friends and friend groups, and we talked about if there's a friend or a friend group that every time you get together, you're just talking, it's dirty jokes, it's filthy language, and we talked about you may need to separate from those friends. So let me just challenge you maybe with three Ps, I made an alliteration here, of things to do if you are thinking of that relationship or that friend group, and I'm specifically speaking to you young people, speaking to all of us, because we can all have these, but... Young people are so, you are so influenced by friends, and I get it. I was there. I was young once. I had a hair and the whole thing. <clears throat> but I encourage you three things. Number one is to pray. Pray that the conviction that you're having right now or that you had last week in light of God's word about crude joking and corrupt talking, pray that God would use that conviction for your own good and for the good of your friends. And then second, I would encourage you to present. Go to them and present the gospel. Talk to them about what God is doing in your own heart. Tell them that, man, as I'm growing in Jesus, as I'm finding more, this corrupt talk and the crude joking that we've been doing, I'm just bristling more and more. And talk about your own sin and what Jesus is doing in your life and take the gospel to them. But then three, be prepared to walk away. I said last week that you may need to, and you just, you may need to. You may need to cut off friendships. And I know that's really hard for young people, really hard. 
Because if you do that, if you pray, if you present the gospel, and if you prepare to walk away, you may get ridiculed. You may be losing this friends, maybe the only friends that you have. You may be ostracized. You may be made fun of. You may be all kinds of things. But my word to you, young people and all of us, but as we get older, this is less of a pull for us. But for young people, your sanctification is infinitely more important than your popularity. You are holding on to these friends because it's cool. It's not cool. Cut it off if you need to after you've tried to redeem it. So that's about as thundering as I'm going to get. I have a tough time pounding the pulpit, and I still, the truth is you can't do any of these things in and of yourself. The Spirit of God has to do this within you. But if you needed to hear last week someone taking you by your, your collar, that was my attempt at doing it. So put these things off. May we continue to put off corrupt talking, crude joking, and any sort of sexual, sexual immorality. And let us put on grace-filled words, grace-filled works, and thankful hearts. Okay, now we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and look at verse 28. So head to the right in your Bible and find Ephesians chapter 4. And... Uh, Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Okay, we see three commands here. Do not steal, do honest and good work, and share with those in need. So let's pray together, and then we're going to just take each of those commands one by one. Uh, Gracious Father, as we come before you again this morning and come before your word, Lord, we pray that you would be preparing in our hearts fertile soil. Lord, we know theologically, we know mentally that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it will pierce our hearts. Uh, But Father, help us to experience that today. Lord, as we look at this important area of... uh, what we do with our work, and what we do with our giving. May you convict us of any areas in which we are sinning in the area of stealing. May you revive our hearts, uh, empower us to work hard for you and not for men, and that we might do this to uh, the good of others and to the glory of your name. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28 starts with our first command. Let the thief no longer steal. So when we talked about last week, the first thing that you're doing, and we're, right, we're reading all of these in the context of Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, where we're putting off the old man, we're cutting off sin, we're renewing the spirit of our mind in the scriptures, we're thinking about things rightly, and then we're putting something on. So Paul's very clear here, the, the uh, definitions are almost unnecessary to talk about. Literally, this could be read, stealer, steal no longer. Right? So this was likely a problem for the first century church in Ephesus. So if you're familiar with uh, what Ephesus was or where it was, it was a major trade city. There was a port and there were people traveling through all the time. And so you could think of people being able to be uh, thieves really easy and have their livelihood from that, where people are passing through and it would be easy to have this lifestyle. And so Paul's saying, this is not how we are to live. If you've come to Christ, you need to put this off. Now, some of you may hear struggle with this. This is an interesting one. 
Um, and as you talk to people, some people really struggle with it, like daily struggle with going into a store and not just swiping the candy bar or the whatever. Like it's just a strong temptation. That may be you this morning and God has a word for you. But I think all of us certainly break the eighth commandment in many and different ways. Um, and I think we need to really broaden our understanding and we could go a thousand different directions uh, and see it. Yes, millions and millions of ways that we could break this commandment. But I just wanted to talk through a few. And so when we talk about the eighth commandment, Exodus 20 and verse 17, you shall not steal. Like really straightforward. This just is not uh, what a believer, one that's following Christ is to do. And so when we think about that, um, like immediately we think of material things, right? It's just taking things that don't belong to us. Um, it's shoplifting, it's borrowing without the intent to repay. Maybe, be, maybe before even I go beyond that, as I thought about this, I looked back at some of the catechisms and confessions, and if you look at some of the confessions on this, like it's super long. Like if you want to really be convicted, like read through the list of all the ways that we break the Eighth Commandment. But one simple uh, answer to the question of what does the Eighth Commandment forbid is from a Baptist catechism that says, uh, the Eighth Commandment forbids whatever would unjustly withhold or diminish a person's possessions or attainments. So whatever would unjustly withhold or diminish a person's possessions or attainments, that is stealing. That's what we're not to do. So material things, certainly. But I think maybe, um, well, another one is uh, claiming the work of another, right? So this would be for you students, this would be cheating on stealing someone's answers. So you're pulling them down by taking their answers from them, or maybe even more clear, plagiarism. If you take someone's work of writing and put it in as your work without proper notations and quotations, then that's stealing, and you need to not do that. It's against God's word, it's against the new man, it's the old man that's doing that. But maybe one area that we often uh, find ourselves stealing and don't even think about it is in the area of work. And this is the context of Ephesians 4.28. And a couple of different things in work is one is just time. And we have all seen this either as employees or employers where everyone takes, oh, a little extra time in the coffee break, right? It's like, oh, we have 15 minutes, but it really turns into 25 or 30. Or you take the extra long lunch break, or you show up a little bit late, or you leave a little bit early consistently, you're stealing. That's wrong. It needs to be put off. Another one, though, maybe even more prevalent is effort. Now, we all have different capacities, right? There's, and that's just how God's made us. Some people can perform at this level, and some people can't, and that's okay. But whatever God's given you, it's kind of the parable of the talents, right? That if you are capable of producing at this level, pick your industry, whatever you're doing, and you're consistently giving your employer this level, you're stealing. You need to be doing everything that you can to give everything that you are in your work. You need to be doing the best that you're able to do. And if you're not, then you're stealing. And then another example that we often think about is financial dealings. And this is my world. I have to have conversations with people all the time in the tax world. Like, no, you can't not report that income. Like, it, you have to report it. Sorry, you're going to pay some tax, and that's just how it is. You can't inflate your expenses. You can't make up expenses to reduce your tax liability. It's stealing. It's wrong, and you can't do it. In invoicing customers, you can't unjustly in inflate an invoice just because you think that they're naive or you can get away, get away with it. If you're charging customer X this and you 
charge customer Y that for the exact same product just because customer Y doesn't know, you're, you're stealing and you need to not do that. If you're using your business credit card for personal expenses, clearly stealing. If you're not paying your employees or your vendors on time or the amount that you agreed, that's stealing. So these are just a few, and there's many, many more examples, but I'd really encourage you as you think about this, do not steal. We often think of, oh, I don't do that. Like I don't go steal diapers from Walmart or whatever. Uh, but I think we do a lot of times this sneaks in in different ways that we're not even thinking about. So I'd encourage you to um, think about this. And I think the reason we, one of the reasons we don't think that we steal much is because we have the wrong standard. Well, everybody does that, right? Everybody takes the long coffee break. Well, no one actually reports that income. And that's not the standard. The standard isn't your neighbor. It's not your uncle who gives you tax advice that I have to say, don't listen to your uncle. <laughs> the standard is God. God said, do not steal, and we should not steal. So as you're thinking about this, maybe Psalm 139, 24, see if there is any grievous way in me. Just ask the Lord, is there anything in this area of stealing that you would tell me to not do or to cut off? Okay, so now we've identified what we're to put off. We're to put off stealing. The next step in the process in, in Ephesians 4.23 is to renew the spirit of our minds. And as we talked about last week, in this, in this stage, there's a bazillion ways that you can go. And every time you pick something up, God may take you in a different direction. But the most important thing as you're renewing your mind is to be in God's word. Like this is what is to shape our thinking. So as we're thinking about stealing, we need to go to God's word. We need to study it. We need to ask what God's telling us about it. We need to pray over it. We need to meditate on it. We need to fellowship and talk about it with other people. And we need to allow God's word to shape our thinking, not the culture and not our own hearts, for we'll see our own hearts are faulty. So one, as an example, again, there's a, a million different ways that you could go with this, but as I thought in preparing for the message, the question came to mind is, why do we steal? Why does the Bible tell us, what does the Bible tell us about our desire to steal, to cheat, to cut corners? Um, maybe, yeah, to steal in any of these examples that we had. And I'm just, there's myriads, right? Myriads of reasons, but I'm just going to give us three. So the first reason why we're tempted to steal and why we sometimes do steal is because of our flesh and our old hearts that are still hanging on. This part, our old man that we're trying to cut off, it's still corrupt. It still desires us. If you look at Ephesians 4 and verse 22, this put off verse, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. This old man is still hanging around and it still has desires that are deceitful. Ah, I'll never get caught. Everybody's doing it. It's not that big a deal. That's deception. It's lies. It's from Satan and you need to be done with it. But that is what happens. Now flip back to Matthew chapter 15. So we're going we're gonna to be all over. So have your, have your fingers ready. As God would have it, it, it kind of flows from Matthew back to the, to the end of the New Testament. So hopefully it'll be in a good order for us to flip. Matthew chapter 15, and this is very familiar or very similar to what we looked at last week in Luke chapter 6. We said we had this corrupt talk and the crude language because Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? It's out of our corrupt hearts that this language comes out. And so he says the same thing here about thievery. So 
if, uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 10, the context is they're talking about eating and what defiles a man, and then Peter asks for an explanation. So you're familiar with the, with the parable and with the teaching, but I just want to read verse 19. So Matthew chapter 15 and verse 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So it is out of the heart. Why, do we, why are we tempted to steal? Why do we steal? Because the old man is still hanging on and our hearts are deceptive and wicked and need to be cut off. So that's number one. Our hearts are still, our old hearts are still deceiving us. Secondly, we are tempted to steal and often do steal because we're not content. We have not learned to be content. Uh, I don't know if this actually happened, but John, it's alleged that John Rockefeller was asked a question once, how much money does it take to make a man happy? Anybody know how he answered that? A little participatory. One more dollar. How much will it take to make... Now, Rockefeller, if you know, Rockefeller, literally, if you were infl- income uh, inflation-adjusted, take Rockefeller, he and Musk kind of just go back and forth depending on what Tesla is doing that week, right? Like, he's worth... He, Rockefeller would be worth over $400 billion today. That's about where Musk is at, again, depending on what he's doing with t- Twitter or who knows what Musk is doing. But, right, so Rockefeller had a lot of money. And what his answer was, was just one more dollar. That answer, if, that was, if that really happened or not, what the, the story, the parable of that is, if you're just trying to be satisfied with money, you'll never have enough. You will never have enough. I don't care if you're making $30,000 a year or $300,000 a year or $3 million a year. If you think you'll be happy by making 300 instead of 30, you won't be. You won't be content with that. If you think you'll be happy once you get this, that, or the other, it won't happen. So let's look at the scripture in Luke chapter 3 in this area of contentment. So Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist is ministering out in the wilderness. People are coming to him to be baptized, and, uh, and they're, they're repenting and believing on this coming Messiah that John is preparing the way for. And there's two groups that come to him that they ask, what should we do? What should we be? They're essentially asking, what should we be putting off? What's the sin that's entangling us that in light of this new repentance we should be turning from? So if you look at Luke chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 12, our two groups of people are tax collectors and soldiers. So Luke chapter 3 and verse 12. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to John, Teacher, what shall we do? And John said to the tax collectors, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and, and we, what shall we do? And John said to the soldiers, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. So what the story was here in, in John the Baptist's time is there were tax collectors that were with Caesars. Uh, they had jobs with the government, right? And they were to go and collect and they were getting paid a wage to do that. But what they would do is they would be authorized to collect this and they would collect that and they would keep the difference, right? And John saying, you, that's stealing. Don't do that. Put it off. Soldiers, like similarly, right? They're authorized and paid to be soldiers, but they're using their power to falsely accuse and to extort money from people. 
And we need to be putting those things off, John says. And then the end of that verse, though, is where we want to focus. John says, be content with your wages. You don't need You don't need to take the spread. In fact, you shouldn't. It's sin. Be content with what God has provided for you. Now, the reason I say this is learned, if you flip over to Philippians, you're going to go to the right in your Bible and you're going to get past Ephesians, and right after Ephesians is the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, the old man does not know anything about contentment. We don't, uh, we're not content, we're not content with anything, and we're always wanting more. But Paul, as our example here in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, he writes, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am, sorry, yes, in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul learned to be content, and we are tempted to steal, and we do steal because we're not content with what God has provided for us. So we're, not, we're stealing because our hearts are deceived and they're wicked. We are tempted to steal, and we do steal because we're not content. And we, again, just coming back, and I just want to drive this home because it's so, it's so prevalent in our culture that if I could just have that car or that job or that house or that relationship, I'll be content. You won't be content. If you're not content with what God has provided you, don't be deceived that you'll be content with anything else. It will never be enough. Okay, thirdly, so the old man is corrupt. This is why we're tempted to steal. We're not, we haven't learned to be content, and so we steal. And then thirdly, is we don't believe the promises of God. We steal or we're tempted to steal because we don't believe God's promises. So flip further to the right in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 13. So you'll get through the T's, Thessalonians, and Timothy and Titus. You'll probably miss Philemon. It's in there someplace. And you'll land in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, the writer writes, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I'll come back and we'll talk about that promise, but flip back to Matthew chapter 6. A longer passage and familiar but I think appropriate as we think of the promises of God and how not trusting in the promises of God can lead us to stealing. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span, span of life? And why are you anxious about your clothing? 
Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so closes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We steal and are tempted to steal because we don't believe the promises of God. God tells us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. He tells us if that we seek his kingdom and his righteousness first, all of these things which is just referring back to food and clothing, the things that we worry about will be provided for you. We're tempted to steal because we don't believe that God will provide for us. And he has promised and he is faithful. So we must remember that as we're battling against this sin, we might go back to the scriptures and remember that our hearts are deceptive and we need to be on guard against them. We need to learn to contentment. And this is a process. This is part of sanctification of learning to be content and what God has provided. And then we need to go back again and again and again to the promises of God. And as we are trusting in God, then we will be able to more easily put off the old man. Okay, so that's one example of renewing your mind. You look at the topic, then you see what does the scripture, how does it inform us, ask some questions about it, and say, okay, now I'm thinking more rightly about this. I understand maybe what areas I need to be paying attention to in order to put off. And then we turn to the putting on. So back in Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to break this into two different commands. The first one, so this is uh, Ephesians 4 and verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. So rather than stealing, we are to work, right? Very brief, uh, there's books written and sermons, many sermons written on a theology of work, but just very briefly, number one, work is good, really good. From the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, he tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, multiply, fill and subdue and rule the earth, and all of this was very good. Sometimes we think about work and think, ugh. Got to go to work to provide for my needs. Da, 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 da. It's, it's not bad. In fact, it's good. And if we're not working, um, we're going to be missing out on the blessings of God. But we know that sin came into the world and it totally changed everything, including work. Genesis 3, 17 to 19, part of the curse that the, the ground would be producing thorns and thistles and it would make work now laborious and there would be great toil so we need to understand that about work like if you're just looking for a good job that you always enjoy and never do anything that you don't like you're well if you find it great praise the lord for that but there's likely you're going to be work and there's going to be things you're like i got to do this because it's part of my job and that is part of sin but it doesn't change the fact that work is good work is still good and in fact this cultural mandate that god gave to adam and eve he repeated to noah in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1, Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So the same command comes, go and be fruitful, multiply, bring out of the earth all of the goodness that I have baked into it and created it. So work 
is good, and God tells us to be done with stealing and to go to work. But he doesn't tell us to go to just any kind of work. He gives us a couple, Paul gives us a couple of uh, clarifying modifiers here. He says that it needs to be honest, or other translations is good work. So work is good, but not all work is good. As you think about the Ephesian culture, there would be many that would be coming to Christ and be doing things that were not good. They were evil. And you could fill in lots of uh, blanks from prostitution to uh, slave trade to any number of things that were not good and need to be put off. So it needs to be good and honest work. Now I say that, and I want to balance it with sometimes when someone comes to Christ and is excited about the relationship with God, they think, oh, I need to be done being a fill-in-the-blank tax guy, and I need to become a pastor. I need to be a missionary to Africa. Now, if you want to be a missionary to Africa, talk to Clarence, and he will help you get there. Uh, But not all of us are called to the mission field. There is good and godly work in the marketplace to do taxes well, to be the best lawnmower that you can be, to fill in the blank. It's good and godly. Now, some of you may come to Christ and you may see that, boy, this industry that I'm working in is just, it's evil and you need to change your job. And that, that's true. But most of us, we're doing good and honest work now and we just need to do it to the glory of of God. So it's clarifying. It needs to be good. It needs to be honest. And there's much good and honest work to be done. And then the next part of that verse is with our own hands. We need to do honest work, honest and good work with our own hands. I think Paul's push here is against idleness. So if you flip to Second uh, Thessalonians, to the right of your Bible, just a couple of books, you'll find Second Thessalonians chapter 3. So to do honest work with your own hands. Paul tells us a lot about idleness here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. So we must work heartily as to the Lord, not in idleness, not busy bodies, but rather busy at work, quietly earning our living and not wearying in doing good. Now, as a... uh, as a hardworking, free market loving American, like I just want to put a strong amen here, especially after verse 10. If you're not willing to work, you're not going to eat. Now, it's willing, not able. If you're not able to work, it's different. He uses the word willing. But the reason I can't hit the American free market button too hard is that God is not calling us to be good capitalists, God is calling us to be good Christians. 
He's calling us to be like Jesus, and that's where he takes us back in Ephesians and verse 4 into our third command. So Ephesians 4, verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest or good work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This obviously would be revolutionary to the thief, right? The thief that has spent his or her whole life making his living or providing for his needs by stealing. And Paul says, you need to put that off. You need to go to work, but you need to go to work so that you can give it away, so that you can help other people. It's not, in fact, to provide for your own needs, it's, but it's to provide for the needs of others. The fact that we go to work to provide for our own needs is a given. It's a given for all of us. Timothy, Paul writes in Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than the unbeliever. So it's clear that we go to work to provide for our own needs, provide for our family's needs, but God is calling us to something infinitely higher than that. He's calling us to go to work, to not only provide for our own needs, he's going, that's how he most regularly provides for our needs is for us to go to work. But he's telling us to go to work so that we can help those in need. So don't steal, work hard, and work hard enough to give. Now again, God's not calling us to be good capitalists. Why he tells us this is he's calling us. This is the whole purpose of sanctification is he's telling us to be like Jesus. If we look at chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 that Jeff read for us this morning, this really brings it all together in what God is calling us to do. Ephesians 5, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God. Right? We're being conformed to God. As beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Do you see what Paul's doing here? That when we give up stealing, that when we work hard, and when we work hard to give, we are imitating Jesus. This is exactly what he did as he gave and he gave and he gave to us. And this is our goal of sanctification, that we would put off stealing, that we would work hard doing honest work with our own hands, and then we would do that in order that we may give to others as Christ gave to us. Okay, a number of application questions, and then maybe just a, if I have time, somebody throw something at me if I go along. I don't have a timer going. Uh, a couple of application questions for over lunch for this message, and then I think I'm going to have time to talk a little bit more about giving, which is one of my things I love to talk about, and then uh, a bit just to wrap up these three weeks together. So questions for lunch. Are you stealing in any way? If so, what actions would God have you take to make it right? Have you learned or are you learning to be content? In what areas of your life are you not content? Discuss with your family, discuss with your friends. What areas am I thinking, boy, if I could just get, if you can answer that question, that is probably what you're not content in. Are you resting in and being thankful for God's current provision for you? Do you see what he's provided for you as abundant and great? Are you resting in that and thanking him for that? Are you believing in the promises of God that he will never leave you nor forsake you, that he will provide for all of your needs 
If you're not, get back into the scriptures and pray that God would increase your faith to believe in his promises. Are you working heartily for the Lord, doing honest work with your own hands? Or do you have a tendency to be an idle busybody? Ask God to increase your faithfulness to his command of good work. And are you sharing with those in need? So this question of are you sharing, Paul doesn't go into it here, uh, but it begs the question of how much. How much should we share? If we're going to be imitators of God, how much should we share as we're working to earn money? And if we're to be like Jesus, let's see what he did, his giving like. So if you flip back to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 and verse 7. How does God give to us? In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. This is how God gives. He doesn't give like a sprinkling. Like according to the riches of his grace, if we think about God and who he is, and that all of his blessings that we see in Ephesians 1 that we talked about two weeks ago, that he lavishes that upon us, that is how we're to give. Now, what does that look like? How does that shake out? And I would say uh, 10% is an okay place to start. Like maybe you're, maybe you're here and you're not giving anything. And it's not just to the church. I'm just talking giving, like getting money out of your world, being a conduit for God to give to missions, to give to the poor, to give to those in need. Maybe 10, 10% is a good place to start. Maybe you're not giving anything and 10% seems like a, like a far cry, like no way could I ever do that. But I would challenge us that many of us in this room that 10% is way too low. If we look at God's giving, his lavishness of giving us grace, the riches of his grace being poured upon us are giving, the question might be not how much do I need to give to kind of check the box, but what would lavish giving look like? What would God have me do to make my giving reflect his giving? A quote that I've shared with you before and will probably share with you again because I think it is helpful in uh, thinking about how much to give is from C.S. Lewis. You probably have heard of it, heard it, uh, but it's just, it's good. It's good to think of and it's a lifestyle quote. Like how do we balance this when God tells us to go to work and we're gonna, he's going to provide for our needs through that? How much of that do we need to keep to like, pay our rent and our mortgages and feed our kids? And how much of that would God have us give away? So this is C.S. Lewis's crack at it. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. If your life looks just like everybody else's life and your income bracket, wherever that's at, uh, you may not be giving like if we think about the way Jesus gave, he gave up the glories of heaven in perfect relationship with the Father and the Spirit to come to give his life for us. And he sacrificed everything. So what would God call you to give?
Okay, finally, in summary, for the kind of the three weeks we've been in Ephesians, I appreciate you guys enduring uh, me. I didn't exactly know where we were going, or uh, but I pray that God uses his word in each of our hearts to continue to conform us to Christ. So we talked about two weeks ago that God justifies. He is the primary actor. He saves us. He saves us out of darkness into light, out of death into life. And when we are saved, we are in Christ. We are abiding with him. And there is so much to be studied and thought about there. But then when we're in Christ, we know God's will for us. The last place I'm going to take you is back to Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We often ask, what's God's will for my life? And there's a few places in Scripture where he tells us what his will for us is. And this is one of them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, we talked about both of those things, walking and pleasing God, just as you are doing, that you do, that you do so more and more. This is the progressive sanctification, God changing us from one degree of glory to another, that we would do it more and more walking in faithfulness. Verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is what God wants to do with each one of us. Each one of us that are in Christ, his goal and his purpose and what he will accomplish is that he will conform us to Jesus. And how he does that is he continues to empower us to put off the old man He continues to allow us to renew our spirit in his word, and then he allows us to put on Jesus. A couple of different uh, guys in church here shared with me, Sinclair Ferguson is doing uh, kind of a teaching series on this exact topic. And Ferguson wrote this, putting sin to death is not sanctification. Putting sin to death in order that you may be adorned with the graces of the Lord Jesus, that's sanctification. So the reason we fight hard to put off sin is so that the fruit of the Spirit can swell up from within our hearts, our new hearts, and then pour out as a blessing to others. So may we, by the power of the Spirit, fight to put our remaining sin to death, trusting God to adorn us with the graces of Jesus. May he do that for our good, for the good of our neighbor, and for the glory of God. Let's pray together. God, it has been good to be in your word this morning. Lord, I pray for the truths that we looked at over the last three weeks, that you would continue to deepen them into the souls of our hearts. Lord, we know what your will for us is, that you would sanctify us, that you would conform us to Jesus, our perfect example, the author and perfecter of our faith. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would Uh, just well up within our hearts a great thankfulness for what you have done. And may it spur us on to put off, put off stealing, put off corrupt talk and language and crude joking, to renew our minds in your word, and to put on Jesus that we might see his fruit pouring out of our lives to the glory of your name. Amen.